Romans chapter 12 will be in verses 9 through 21. And as you're headed there, uh, listen to this insight from Francis Schaeffer. Francis Schaeffer says, People are unique in the inner life of the mind. What they are in their thought world determines how they act. This is true of their value systems and it is true of their creativity. It is true of their corporate actions, such as political decisions, and it is true of their personal lives. The results of their thought world flow through their fingers or from their tongues into the external world. This is true of Michelangelo's chisel and it is true of the dictator's sword. This is what Francis Schaeffer is, is seeing here and pointing to our attention is the fact that your worldview, your theology, and the theology through which you see and interpret the world, this worldview doesn't stay in your mind. It, it isn't even private. Your conceptualization of the world, or as Schaefer puts it, the inner life of your mind isn't even private. It will affect other people. And it will affect the way you treat other people. And so with this in mind, we see this in our passage tonight in Romans chapter 12, where we'll be looking at Christian ethics. How should Christians treat one another? Uh, how does the Christian worldview flow out of our fingers and from our tongues into the external world? That's what we'll be looking to see here in Romans chapter 12. So um, let's read the text together. Um, and then we'll pray and then we'll get into it. So let's stand together to honor the reading of the word. Hear the word of the Lord. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thoughts to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is God's word. Let's pray. 
Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are a speaking God, that you reveal yourself to us and your will to us in the scripture. And we ask that you give us eyes to see and ears to hear it tonight as we come to you in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. So the title tonight is Christian Ethics 101. Christian Ethics 101, sort of a, a baseline, a beginning point of Christian ethics. And we'll see it in three points, sort of first looking at the standard of Christian ethics. What's the rule of Christian ethics? Second, we'll look at this idea of genuine love. And three, we'll see uh, the pursuit of peace. So what is ethics? Ethics is essentially the, the study and the art of doing good. Knowing the difference between good and evil and doing what is good. Which begs the question, what is good? How do you know what is good? How do you know what is good and evil and who defines it? And so for the Christian, the standard of ethics must be God himself, must be God. He is the one who defines what is good and what is evil. Goodness is determined by God's own character. In fact, God is called good, that he is good. Um, good is not just something that he does, it's who he is. He is good in his own nature. And so therefore evil is anything that is a departure from the good character of God. You know, I've heard it described as kind of like um, light is a thing and then darkness is the absence of light. And in a way that's, that's true of good and evil, good has a positive category that has a sort of archetype, which is God in his own character. Evil is anything that departs from his goodness. So when we look at God's law, his commandments, the, the things that God tells us that we should and shouldn't do. Um, we have to understand these things in light of the standard of God himself. And so why is murder evil? Why is that bad? Is it because it takes the life of another person? Is it because it's an act of violence towards someone else? Um, these, these are true, but why is it ultimately bad? Why, why is taking the life of another bad? Why is doing violence towards someone else bad? Well, murder is evil because God is life. He is life in and of himself and he gives life. And so to take it unjustly is evil. It's a departure from God's good character. Adultery is evil because God is faithful. Theft is evil because God gives. Lying is evil because God is true. So do you see, we, our standard of ethics, how we should live as Christians, must be rooted ultimately in God. And so as you guys um, grow up, and some of you already uh, have children and entering into the time of parenting, this is important for us to remember that even as we parent, that we are to parent um, according to God's standard and not our own. Why do we enforce rules as parents? Because we are enforcing God's rules. Any rule that we give that isn't grounded in God's character and God's commandments is, is not worthy of following. Um, and so God is the standard of all ethics. And, and here's where um, sort of the, the modern secularist uh, 
materialist view of society falls apart. Uh, because apart from an absolutely transcendent and immutable God, there is no rational basis for morality. Okay, I just used a lot of multi-syllabic words. Okay, so what, what am I saying? Apart from an absolutely transcendent and immutable God, apart from a God who is above everything and outside of everything and immutable and unchangeable, from eternity, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God, right? Without this type of God who is outside of our um, human struggles outside of time and, and that is unchanging, there's no rational basis for morality that, should be, that is binding upon everyone, okay? So if there is no God who is transcendent and immutable, Good and evil simply become a matter of personal preference and power. What is good is what the strongest man in the room says is good, right? What is evil is what the strongest man in the room says is evil. It's a matter of personal preference. I mean, why does it matter what highly evolved strains of bacteria do to each other? Because according to most of your biology professors, that's what you are and you're even your ethics professors. You are a highly evolved strain of bacteria. You know, lightning struck a mud puddle and brought to life this bacteria that turned into a hominid, turned into you. Your ancestors a fish. Why does it matter what we do to each other? We don't chastise the animals for their, their ethical uh, violations. We don't do that, do we? But why do we chastise one another? Why do we hold each other to certain ethical standards? It's because we are made in the image of God. And we are moral creatures. And we have the, the commandments and the law of God imprinted upon our hearts, even though we suppress it in our unrighteousness and our sin as hard as we can, it's still there and we can't shake it. And so we make up all sorts of reasons why we say this and that. But everyone knows that there is good and evil. But only those who know the true and living God, who is transcendent, immutable, has revealed himself in creation in his word. Only those people, only us Christians can say that there is a rational basis for morality. Because God is the standard. Not my changing preferences, um, but God's unchanging word. And so since we have this standard, uh, since we have the standard, we must conform our ethic to it. Our minds must be conformed to God's standard, not the world's. Remember two weeks ago, we talked about this, that our minds need to be uh, transformed. We must then hate what is evil and love what is good, as God has defined the terms. All of us have this impulse to hate evil and to love good. But because of sin, we've suppressed this truth and we, we uh, have believed lies and distortions. Uh, but we must look to God and hate what is evil and love what is good according to the way that God has defined them. Which kind of leads us to the next point. That when Paul sort of summarizes um, the marks of a true Christian, Christian ethics, it's really summarized in this idea of love. 
And that isn't anything new, is it? What, what was Jesus' answer when the, the teachers come to him and say, uh, what's the greatest commandment? What was Jesus' answer? Love. Love the Lord God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, right? And then what was the second greatest? And love your neighbor as yourself. So those of you who might have someone come to you and say, hey, 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 Christians are about love, not law. Do you see that they're offering you a false dichotomy? Because Jesus says, what is the summary of the law? What is the law about? How to love. How to love God and how to love your neighbor. And so Christian ethics, Christian way of living is simply how to love. And so let us not pit uh, obedience, following commands of God uh, against love. Jesus didn't do that. We shouldn't do that. And so in this passage, Paul just gives this long list of, of commands um, to do. It, um, it just seems like he was just like, okay, here's what things come into mind. And he's just writing them down. And if you, if you look at it in the original language, it, it reads kind of like a bulleted list. So I don't know about you, but I like bulleted lists. Like my notes right now are bulleted lists. And I, I just find them very helpful. And so this verses 9 through 13 reads kind of like a bulleted list in the original language. Um, it's a dative noun that's followed by active participles. Um, and it's um, describing what this genuine love looks like. And so um, to help you get a sense of how the original audience would read this and see this, because we see that we see uh, independent commands from one another, the way it's written in the English here. I'm going to uh, read, you from, read to you from Young's literal translation, uh, which is a translation that is, as it says, literal. It's word for word. Sometimes it can be very wooden and rigid, rigid but sometimes it's helpful to see there. And I've also made some edits to it to um, make it a little more modern and easier to understand without losing the, the word order in the feel here. But this is sort of a literal translation of verses 9 through 13. Um, the love unfaked, abhorring the evil, cleaving to the good, in the love to one another, brotherly, in the honor going before one another, in the diligence, not slothful, in the spirit, fervent, the Lord serving as a slave. In the hope, rejoicing. In the tribulation, enduring. In the prayer, persevering. To the needs of the saints, participating. The, hospi the hospitality, pursuing. So you see how this, this structure is, is really showing us what this unfaked, unfeigned, genuine love looks like. This is what love looks like. It's abhorring the evil. It's cleaving, holding fast to the good. It's loving one another in a brotherly way. It's honoring. It's being diligent. It's, it's fervent. It's serving the Lord as a slave. It's rejoicing, enduring. Like it's all these active participles, these ING words. Uh, and so I really uh, appreciate this insight because it helps us to see that the Christian ethic is an ethic of applied love. It's ongoing love, day by day, moment by moment. And that looks different in different circumstances. 
This genuine love loves some things, holds fast to some things, and abhors other things. You know, um, there's, there's differences in these things. And sometimes you're enduring. Sometimes you're rejoicing. Um, right? There's these differing circumstances that this manifestation and application of love um, steps in and looks differently. So let's look at some of these. I'm going to kind of rush through this just for the sake of time um, and just knock off each of these commands here. Um, so I'm not going very deep into this tonight just for the sake of time. So what are some of these uh, attributes of this genuine love? Well, one we see here is that we should hate evil. Hate evil. Abhor what is evil. Um, did you know that hate can be a Christian virtue? Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. That's the first thing he says. Isn't that interesting? Let love be genuine. Hate what is evil. Why should we hate what is evil? Because it's a departure from God's good character. Evil brings destruction and death into the world. We should uh, hate evil. We should abhor it. We should hate it strongly. Then he says, hold fast to what is good. Be glued to what is good. Uh, the word for hold fast here is to join and to bind with like glue, to, to glue, to adhere. So he says, a hate, abhor what is evil, but glue yourselves to what is good. The, he says to hold fast. This word is, is, is related to the word that is um, the, the way that a husband should cleave to his wife. That, that a husband, a man should leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they become one flesh. This hold fast um, is the same uh, root word here. And so we should hold fast to goodness like a man holds on to his bride. It needs to be uh, without hypocrisy. It needs to be genuine love. How can this love be genuine? How can it be without hypocrisy? Well, first it must flow from a heart that has been filled with the love of God. Right. You can't manufacture this genuine love. Like you can try and you might get pretty good at faking it for a while. And you'll get burnt out. And go down in a, you know, a crash of flames or your hypocrisy will be exposed. And you'll go down in a crash of flames. She only can fake it for so long. That's why he says, let the love be genuine. Let it be unfeigned. Let it be not faked. And this can only happen when your heart has been filled with the love of God. Romans 5, 5 says, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. What does John say? We love because he first loved us. So your only hope of having this genuine Christian love is that the love of God must be first poured into your heart. And then you flow from there. Jesus says that when you come and drink of him, that from your heart will flow rivers of living water. It must be genuine love without hypocrisy. We are to love one another with brotherly affection. With brotherly affection. This means we are to love one another with loyalty and commitment to one another. We need to have each other's back. 
Do you see? And then he says we are to love each other in showing honor. Okay, that's, we, we are not a very, um, our culture is quickly losing the practice of showing honor. Like we really have, um, and this, this was written to in a culture that is intense with showing honor. An honor-shame culture. I mean, honor and shame drove the society. It drove the culture. And so when, when Paul says to outdo one another in showing honor, he's calling them to, to something very high and very lofty. You know, for us, we have so fallen from the idea of showing honor to others that it wouldn't take much for us to feel like we were obeying this command. Like, oh yeah, I held the door open for somebody. I, I, I showed them honor. Um, you know, but we need to reclaim this. This is a Christian virtue to, to show honor to, honor to those whom honor is due. And so let's make it a competition. Let's make it a competition here to outdo one another in showing honor. So what are some practical ways that that looks like? Well, honor your word. When you promise someone you're going to do something, do it. Make every uh, opportunity to fulfill your word. Um, show up on time. Don't make people wait for you. Practice the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them done to you. And, and I'm going to say something shocking. Reclaim the traditional ways of showing honor. Right? Okay, I, I'm going to say this in front of all of you. I stopped holding the door open for Kayla and getting in the car like 10 years ago. And I should have never stopped. She's got an amen back there. <laughs> right? I wasn't, I mean, I was sort of passively taught that. I guess I'd seen it in some things. But there's a, there's a reason for that. What does that communicate? That, that a woman is the glory of a man. To be honored. Um, to be valued. Um, and there's, there's ways that we do that. Uh, men, uh, shake a man's hand, look him in the eyes. Right? Show honor. Um, even though these are extra biblical traditions, like the Bible doesn't command you to do that, but it does command you to show honor. And so the question is, what does honor look like in our culture that, is, um, that we can do God, in a godly way? Um, and so I'm going to encourage you to do that. So um, in the showing of honor, uh, the, the word here is kind of the word for lead from the front. The ESV says outdo one another, but it's the idea that, that lead from the front in showing honor. You set a standard, outdo one another, compete with one another to be a culture that shows honor um, to one another. Now, there's a, there's a section in here where it gets tricky um, to know exactly what Paul is getting at here, uh, but where he says, do not be slothful in zeal. This is verse 11. Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. So the question is, are these like three different commands or is this one command? Um, is he saying to be diligent in your spiritual service? Um, or is he saying, don't be lazy, uh, fan up the spirit, you know, be fervent in the spirit and serve the Lord? Are these three separate commands? And the answer is, I don't know. Um, so... All of the above. I think you can't go wrong. And so um, I've sort of combined them here. 
Um, and I, to be honest, I don't know if that's correct, um, but uh, the point is valid. Um, love, have genuine love, and I'll put it this way, with diligent spiritual service. Let this genuine love manifest in diligent spiritual service. Don't be lazy in serving the Lord. Um, this word serve here is do, uh, what is that? Do leu, which is the idea uh, of slavery. Do loss is a slave. Um, and so serve the Lord as a slave. Work hard in serving the Lord. Do it zealously. Be diligent in your service um, to the Lord. Then the next phrase we see here is rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Uh, I, I, I like the, the phrasing in, in the Greek just straight up. Uh, in hope, rejoicing. In tribulation, enduring. In prayer, persevering. Uh, the Jameson Fawcett Brown commentary says each of these exercises helps the other. If our hope of glory is so assured that it is a rejoicing hope, we shall find the spirit of endurance in tribulation natural and easy. But since it is prayer which strengthens the faith that begets hope and lifts it up into an assured and joyful expectancy, and since our patience in tribulation is fed by this, it will be seen that all depends on our perseverance in prayer. You see that, that, that each of these exercises helps the other. That prayer, per, persevering in prayer, helps us to endure in tribulation. And we can endure in tribulation because we're rejoicing in the hope uh, that, is, that we're assured of. Uh, and so that's a really uh, beautiful concept here. So when we gather together and rejoice in worship, um, Worship and hope, rejoice uh, zealously uh, as a way to not only equip yourself to endure in tribulation, but to help those around you endure in, in tribulation. Um, a good story um, is the, the psalm we sang right before we sang, Psalm 124, let Israel now say in thankfulness. Um, this, this psalm, uh, was, was sung by uh, a congregation of people. Uh, John Dury was a pastor in Edinburgh, Scotland, and he was um, arrested and exiled for the city um, for his faith and his teaching. Wasn't allowed to preach in the city and he was exiled. And, and finally he was released and welcome, allowed to come back to Edinburgh. And as he comes into the city, uh, the congregation meets him outside the city and begins singing, Let Israel now say in thankfulness. So like there's this rejoicing in the hope that they were trusting in all along that allowed this endurance in tribulation, all the while being uh, fed and supported by uh, persevering prayer. Uh, this is an encouraging example of this put into practice. So verses 9 through 13 show this um, genuine love, this love unfeigned um, that we are to pursue. And then we see in verses 14 through the end of the chapter, really kind of a, a main theme of pursuing peace. How do we live peaceably in a world that is against God 
and by association against us. Um, we see this in a few different ways. So verses 15 and 16, we see the command essentially to be of the same mind. So as we're living together as the body of Christ, particularly in the church, remember this letter was written to uh, a church. And so as the church is living together, um, they receive this command to be of the same mind. So much so that you are rejoicing with those who rejoice and you are weeping with those who weep and you're doing so in all humility. And so this is the first step in this pursuit of peace. That you be of, you seek to be of the same mind with those whom you are around. You need a people uh, surrounding you. You need a family. You need a community uh, surrounding you. So how are you going to su survive in a hostile world? You can't do it solo. You got to have people around you. You got to have a close group. You've got to have people who are rejoicing with you. You have people who are weeping uh, with you. This thick community, this compelling community that we um, have had established for us by the blood of Christ um, in the church that we walk out day by day is important for maintaining peace in a hostile world. Verse 18, he says, If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Okay, so I think it's important that he begins with these two phrases at the beginning of, of, of the sentence there in verse 18. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably at all. So he's acknowledging that it isn't always possible to live peaceably with everyone. Um, we've already alluded to the fact that the world is hostile to God, hostile to the followers of Christ. Jesus said, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. So we shouldn't be surprised when there's tribulation, there's persecution. Um, but we don't go out seeking it. We seek peace. We pursue peace. And so as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Um, some of you are in certain situations where you're getting near to the end of the if possible. And where that line is, I can't tell you in specifics. It's going to depend on your situation. It's going to depend on the severity of the consequences. Um, and so if you need to talk through um, some of these things and seek some counsel, I'm here for that reason. Uh, when you get near that point of saying, I can't live peaceably any longer, it's never wise to make that decision alone. Right? Um, because of what we see here um, also in this passage. Verse 16, live in harmony with one or one will another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Verse, and he says, never be wise in your own sight. So before this, we have this command to basically humble yourself. Be cautious 
of your own wisdom in times of conflict, right? And so don't be haughty. Associate with the lowly. Don't be wise in your own sight, okay? So once we've all done all that, then it gets to the point of saying, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. And sometimes you get to that line where it's no longer possible. Seek counsel, seek help so that you don't make a foolish decision um, because sometimes um, the consequences can be severe in these uh, matters. And so Paul's not being um, a complete pacifist here. Um, sometimes there is conflict, but we aren't seeking it. We aren't pursuing conflict. We're pursuing peace. So much so, verse 14, um, that he tells us to bless our persecutors. Don't curse them, right? Bless those who persecute you. Bless, he says it again, bless and do not curse them. This one's hard. This is a hard command to obey because when people are persecuting you, people are slandering you, causing you harm, what do you want to do? You want to lash out in vengeance. You want to curse them, right? That's, that's the impulse. That's, that's my uh, default setting for sure. So this is a hard one to obey. But this is what we're called to do because this is what Jesus did. Hey, buddy. <laughs> the word bless here um, is eulageo. Eulageo. Does that sound familiar? Eulogy. It's where we get the word eulogy, to speak well of. And so he, he's not, this isn't just bless, bless their hearts, you know. Oh, bless their heart. I hope you burn in hell. You know, that's not what this is. This is speak well of your persecutors. Man, that's hard to do, guys. I mean, I can just ignore them, pretend they're not there. But can I look to my persecutor and say, you know, they're pretty good at that. You know, they're right about some things here and there. I'm going to speak well of them. I'm going to bless them. I'm not going to curse them. Um, I think we've got a lot of sanctification to do. Um, in this area. But it's a little easier to do if we go back uh, to verse 16. Don't be haughty. Associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Knowing that, I think sometimes this, this impulse to curse our persecutors comes from a place of self-righteousness not seeing ourselves as evildoers as well, right? Yeah, it's, it's always struck me as funny uh, that when Jesus is speaking to his disciples and, um, you know, and he tells them that, you know, what father of you, when his child asks uh, for bread, will give him a serpent, right? And then he says, you who are evil give good gifts to your children. How much more does the father in heaven and so it's like, Jesus like, you who are evil. And the disciples are like, yeah, yeah, you're right. That's, that's a good point, Jesus. You know, there is this awareness that us, followers of Christ, are still evil in comparison to God, right? And so there, there needs the place of humility to even to begin to obey this command to bless those who persecute you um, and not curse them. All right, now, so 
the, the Bible says, do not curse your persecutors. So what do we do with the numerous passages in Scripture where writers of Scripture do that very thing? What do we do with imprecatory prayers in Scripture? What do we do with imprecatory psalms in Scripture? Is the Bible contradicting itself here? Yeah. So imprecatory prayer is a prayer that, that calls for a curse upon someone. An example would be Psalm 58, uh, particularly verses 6 through 10, where the psalmist says, O God, break the teeth in their mouths. Tear out the fangs of the young lions, O Lord. Let them vanish like water that runs away when he aims his arrows. Let them be blunted. Let them be like the snail that dissolves into slime, like the stillborn child who never sees the sun. The righteous will rejoice when he sees the vengeance. He will bathe his feet in the blood of the wicked. Okay, that's pretty heavy, right? That's pretty clear, uh, clearly imprecatory, a, a cursing, calling for a curse here. And if we take Paul himself in 2 Timothy 3.16 saying all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. What do we do? Is, is Psalm 58 breathed out by God and profitable? Paul himself called for enemies of the gospel to be accursed. Same person who wrote Romans 12 says in Galatians 1.9, as we have said before, now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. So what do we do with that? Uh, there's a clear tension in Scripture where there is a proper place for imprecatory prayers, um, Yet there's also the clear commandment to bless those who persecute you and to do not curse. What do we, what do we learn from this? One, uh, imprecation shouldn't be the Christian's first instinct. When you look at the, the um, what am I trying to say? When you, when you look at the ratio, that's the word, the ratio of imprecatory passages in Scripture to the whole rest of Scripture is a small minority. So if the majority of your life is calling curses on people, you're out of line. You're out of line of the emphasis of Scripture. This is a minority um, instinct. And I believe that there is something um, about the new covenant that should make that even more so. There's something about the incarnation of, of Christ coming in flesh and dying on a cross um, for his own enemies that changes that even more so. Because if you remember, that, as I said, that we were once evil, enemies of God. And yet God had mercy on us and didn't curse us. We should be patient with those who are enemies of God at this moment. And we should pray for their salvation. And we should suffer as Jesus did. We should be willing to suffer as Jesus did to bring that to pass. And that we should not be wise in our own eyes, verse 16. So imprecation should not be the Christian's first instinct. But there is a place, as we see in Scripture, all Scripture is profitable, 
breathed out by God, but it must come from a place of humility, weakness, and trust in the judgment of God. So when you read these, these uh, imprecatory psalms, you know, that's some pretty uh, punk rock stuff. Like the righteous will rejoice when he sees the visions. He will bathe his feet in the blood of the wicked. Like, dang, man. But if you look at the surrounding context, the psalmist is crying out in desperation. It's not from a place of self-righteousness and pride. It's a place from weakness and humiliation. Right? So when we call upon God to, uh, to curse those who are against us, it must, it absolutely must be from that place of humility, weakness, and ultimately trust in the judgment of God, which is where the passage goes. So let's read verses 17 through 19 again. He says, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Now, even in these prayers of imprecation, there is a trust in the vengeance and judgment of God. Look, look back in Psalm 58. The righteous will rejoice when he sees the vengeance. Who's the one taking the vengeance in Psalm 58? The Lord. The Lord is the one taking the vengeance here, not us. We don't take vengeance into our own hands. We do not, Christians absolutely do not take revenge. Do we uphold justice? Yes. There's a place for justice to be upheld and God has uh, in given the, thor the authority to uphold justice to the sphere of the state, of the government, um, and not to the church. We do not take vengeance into our own hands. We allow the Lord to do this. And, and this isn't some New Testament invention, right? This, this isn't the idea that vengeance belongs to the Lord is not a New Testament invention. So you might think in the Old Testament, it was like, oh, yeah, just, that's just soak our feet in the blood of our enemies all day long. Um, no, that's again, that's minority. And the main thing is God is the one who takes vengeance. In fact, the quotations here in this passage in Romans 12 are quotations of Deuteronomy and Proverbs. Um, the first is a quote from Deuteronomy 32, 35. And the second is from Proverbs 25, 21 through 22. Because again, the standards of ethics, the standard of right and wrong is fixed and unchanging because it's based upon God's unchanging nature. And he is the same God in the Old Testament as he is today. He's unchanging. So vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord, is written in Deuteronomy. So do you trust the justice of God? And do you trust his timing? You must, if you're going to obey this command, you must wait and allow vengeance to be... Um, to be his. Um, it's never our place to take vengeance into our own hands. No matter how tempting it may be. And no matter how 
justified it may seem. And sometimes, God has, as God has given the authority to the state to be the ones who bear the sword to uphold justice, sometimes they don't do that rightly. And even then, we don't get to take the sword up on our own and handle it rightly. Um, this is important in the Black Lives Matter discussion. Um, when it comes to what do we do when the justice system has failed? Do we take justice into our own hands? Do we turn to vigilantism? Do we loot? Do we take violence, take vengeance? And you cannot read, vengeance is mine, says the Lord, I will repay, and say, yes, that's a place to do, right? Vengeance is the Lord. And it's so interesting to me that this happens to be manifesting itself in our culture so much in this area of race. When the people group who have really displayed the most trust in the judgment and justice of God in North America has been the African Americans. So when you look at the slave tradition, you look at the spirituals, the songs that they sing, it was always based on this trust that God is good and his judgment is faithful and that our future is in his hand. And so that we can, um, what does it say? That, that, that we can be, uh, we can rejoice in hope. We can be patient in tribulation and we can be constant in prayer because God is going to repay. Right? We can learn from that. But vengeance is never ours to take. Um, it's always in the Lord's hands. He will do right. He will uphold justice, either in the, the cross of his son, where all of our sins have been paid for, all of our injustice has been made right, or on that final day of judgment. And that is when we trust. So knowing that, uh, we have this last command to do not be overcome by evil. Oh, that's easy to do. That's easy to do because evil's everywhere. It's easy to be overcome by evil. Um, but the, the scripture says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And he's not saying overcome evil with good. He's not giving you the option of something that's impossible. You can overcome the evil with good. So this is how we, this last commandment here, I believe, is, is how we deal with evil until that final day of vengeance. We overcome it with good. We overcome it with good. We don't get hopeless. We don't uh, fall back into despair. We don't withdraw, but we um, seek peace and we overcome evil with good. John 1, 5 says, The light shines into the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. And therefore, those of us who are followers of the light, we, we follow in his footsteps and we shine into the darkness, knowing that the darkness will not overcome it, but rather the light will overcome um, the darkness. So as we get ready to close here, uh, turn back in your Bible to Psalm 69. Psalm 69. I'm just going to read the last half of this psalm. Uh, 
this psalm is referenced as being fulfilled by Jesus on the cross um, in multiple gospels. And I think you will see those fulfillments here as we read it. But I'll start in verse 16. It says, Answer me, O Lord, for your steadfast love is good. According to your abundant mercy, turn to me. Hide not your face from your servant, for I am in distress. Make haste to answer me. Draw near to my soul, redeem me, ransom me because of my enemies. You know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. My foes are all known to you. Reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. They gave me poison for food. And for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. Let their own table before them become a snare. And when they are at peace, let it become a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and make their loins tremble continually. Pour out your indignation upon them and let your burning anger overtake them. May their camp be a desolation. Let no one dwell in their tents for they persecute him whom you have struck down. And they recount the pain of those you have wounded. And to them punishment upon punishment. May they have no acquittal from you. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living. Let them not be enrolled among the righteous. But I am afflicted and in pain. Let your salvation, O God, set me on high. I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. This will please the Lord more than an ox or a bull with horns or hoofs. When the humble see it, they will be glad. You who seek God, let your hearts revive. For the Lord hears the needy and does not despise his own people who are prisoners. Let heaven and earth praise him. Let the seas and everything that moves in them. For God will save Zion and build up the cities of Judah and people shall dwell there and possess it. The offspring of his servants shall inherit it and those who love his name shall dwell in it. So what we see in this passage, this, this psalm here, which has an imprecatory element to it, but we see in the fulfillment of Jesus, persevering and pursuing the good led him to this intense tribulation. And it was in this pursuit of good through intense tribulation that he definitively overcame evil with good. Verse 22 says, let their own table before them become a snare. And when they are at peace, let it become a trap. That's essentially what was happening. When, when the evil rulers of this world were seeking to put Jesus to death to overcome his goodness with their evil, what happened? He overcame their evil with his goodness. It was a trap for them. In fact, I forget which, where it's at. It just, uh, it just came to me. But the passage that says, I think it's in Corinthians, said if the rulers of this world would have known what they were doing, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. They fell right into his trap that he set by pursuing the good through in tribulation, um, overcoming evil with his good. And we must do the same thing. 1 Peter 2.21 For to this you have been called. So listen up, Christian. 
You have been called to this because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Jesus overcame evil through pursuing the good. We are called to follow him. And part of the evil that he overcame was our own evil, our own sin. And he did that so that we might die to that evil, but to live to righteousness, that we may follow in his footsteps and follow in his command. So let us live as Christ, hating what is evil, loving what is good, and living faithfully day by day. Coram Deo. Let us pray. God, we thank you uh, that we have your word. We thank you that you have given us uh, the standard and that you have revealed to us how we have fallen short of that standard. Uh, that our sins against you are many. But we thank you that your mercy is more and that your son overcame all evil by his goodness incarnate and his obedience and his pursuit of goodness uh, that led through much tribulation, through much persecution and death, even death on a cross. So we thank you for that grace and we thank you that you have given us um, your spirit and that you have poured your love into our hearts that makes us now able to love others and to love in the return. And God, I pray that you make us, this people gathered tonight, a culture marked by this genuine love, a love that isn't fake, but is real, that is flowing from hearts filled with your love, that prefers one another, that is of one mind. And God, that we would pursue peace and that when outsiders speak ill of us and slander us for righteousness sake, um, that their slander will have no legs to stand upon because your people have been faithful to your word. We cannot do this in our flesh and we must do this by your spirit. And so we ask for your help. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.